HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn more about the wonderfully tart Montmorency Cherry at choosecherries.com. Hey there, welcome to The Feed Feed, where we sit down with leaders and upstarts of the food media realm to discuss everything from navigating social media, building, engaging with, and growing a community, and producing content that resonates with young and old. I'm Jay Cohen, Editorial Director of The Feed Feed, the world's largest crowdsourced food publication and social media community, serving as your daily source of what to cook, bake, and drink. Today, we are joined by cookbook author, food blogger extraordinaire, longtime friend of Feed Feed, Gobby Dalkin. Obviously, everyone knows you from What's Gobby Cooking. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you. Yes. Um, so I really like, with all these conversations, I like to start from the very beginning um, because we've been obviously following you for years and have grown to love your kind of Cali vibes for all the recipes you develop, the photos you take, but what got you into food? Like what did you study in college? What made you want to go to culinary school? Let's start from there. Yeah. So growing up, I was actually probably the one of the pickiest eaters I've ever encountered in my life. I only liked grilled cheese and like buttered noodles until I turned 19. Um, <laughs> and when I got to college, I was on the tennis team and I loved cooking for the team before matches. I only knew how to make one thing and that was chicken parm. Tyler Florence taught me back on Food Network a hundred years ago when I was like watching it after high school and like you know, doing my homework while I was watching. Um, so I would make chicken parm for the team before, after, before every match. And I just loved having people around my table and feeding them and the camaraderie it brought. And so I was actually pre-med at the time. Like I had no intention of going into the food world. And after college, I got a job. The whole company folded six months later. This was back in 2008. And instead of going to find another job, I thought I would go to culinary school, honestly, just for fun. Like I just wanted to learn how to cook for myself. 
But at the same time I started school, I also started my blog as just a way to like show people I knew that I could cook. And um, I somehow finagled myself a job as a private chef, which is hysterical because I had no business being a private chef <laughs> for anybody. Um, and it just snowballed from there very slowly. But like I, I ended up just immersing myself in the food world and I never left. So let's let's dive in a little deeper into what it was like as a private chef. Were you mm-hmm. like how many families? What was this like in this kind of first situation of cooking for others in a professional setting? Mm-hmm. So I've only cooked for two families my entire career. One for the first two and a half years, and the other for the last two years. Uh, the first was a family in Malibu, a family of six. They had four kids. Everyone had very different taste preferences and dietary, like dietary restrictions and all that kind of stuff. So I was essentially like a short order cook and I had to cook like nine things a night. And it was honestly the best training I could have asked for because I learned, I was in culinary school at the same time. I learned how to cook literally everything under the sun because they just had such incredible taste and food and they would travel all over the world and they had the most incredible hotels and restaurants and all this stuff. So I was like, Oh, I have to live up to all that. So it was just, I was really, I threw myself in and did it. And then the second family I cooked for, you might've heard of her. I cooked for Jessica Simpson for a few years. Um, (laughs) Oh my God. And, and she is a dream. Like I feel so fortunate that both of my clients, throughout my private chef life were actually amazing people and their families were amazing and their community around them that came over for dinner parties was lovely. I know a lot of people who are private chefs who do not have that same experience and, um, you know, work, you know, like there's just so many horror stories in that industry, but I feel so fortunate that both families were amazing and we vacationed together. And I, you know, when you're a private chef, you're, you're part of their family, like you're in their kitchen and, I just think the kitchen is the heart of the home. And so if you're spending six hours a day preparing lunch and dinner for these people and feeding the kids and feeding the parents and everything, that's a really, um, you know, special place to to work, I think. What were the kind of go-tos? What were Jessica Simpson's favorite dishes? Well, Jess is so, uh, Jess was my favorite because she eats just like I eat. Like she, she's from Texas. So like she loves a Tex-Mex dish. Like we made a lot of like fajita salads and just fajitas, quesadillas, tacos, all that kind of stuff. We did that, you know, four out of five days of the week. And then they're big entertainers. So they would have game day parties and all that. So the rest of the time we were doing like all the dips and the wings and all the like football, like anything you could imagine that was football related, we cooked because they threw so many viewing parties and Super Bowl parties and all that kind of stuff. They were the ultimate entertainers. I love that. Um, So one of my favorite things to ask is to talk through the kind of thought process and the decision of when content creators take something that's like a hobby or a part-time blog and make it their full-time gig. What was kind of your thought process of when you decided to take that plunge? Sure. So I was private chefing and doing the blog at the same time from 2009 until 2013. Maybe it was late 2012. It doesn't matter. So uh, Jess was getting ready to go film a TV show. My first book, Absolutely Avocados, was about to come out. And we were going on this like mini condensed 
book tour and I was like, if I'm ever gonna make a go of what's gotta be cooking full time, this is it. Like I have, I've been really frugal with my money. Like I've saved up. If this doesn't work, I can go back and get another job as a private chef. But like, I need to give this, I need to give myself a chance. And so I just jumped in head first, retired from the private chef world and spent all my time and energy focusing on what's got be cooking and building the website and building the brand. I hired um, this woman who is now my mentor to help me really put what I thought what's got be cooking was into a cohesive package so I could sell that to brands and use it when I was a spokesperson and like have a like a like a a message that was woven throughout all of my content. Um, and I'm not gonna lie, the first six months were really scary. Like I was making a couple hundred dollars here or there off of a sponsored post. I had like two ads on my site, so maybe I'd make like 45 bucks a month or something like that. But it slowly, slowly started to pick up and more brands were taking notice of me and I was going to all these different food conferences and speaking at them. And eventually it got to a place where I was like, okay, this is going to work. And I think the second I became uber confident in the business model is when things took off. I love that. Um, you obviously have become known for this bright Cali aesthetic. I, when I see one of your photos, I know it's yours. What was <laughs> the process like in terms of photography and your background of it and styling and how that has evolved. I think, I mean, when I look at even like my own personal feed of like the photos I posted at the very beginning when I like made an Instagram were garbage. Oh my God. But yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I, I think about what was the learning curve like for you? So for the first four or five years of What's Gotta Be Cooking, I was doing everything on my own. I had zero overhead with the exception of the food. And as I started making a little bit of money, I had this conversation with my mentor and she was like, you know, you're allowed to invest into your business. And I was like, oh, wow, what a concept. Like, who thought of that? Um, and so I got myself a camera. I bought myself props. And then eventually I started working with two of my best friends, Matt Armanderas and Adam Pearson, who are like the dream team of food photographer, food stylist duo. They're actually also married and two of my very best friends. Um, and together, the three of us created what the What's Gotta Be Cooking aesthetic was going to be so that when you saw a photo out in the wild or in a magazine or on Instagram, you were like, oh, that definitely looks like something from What's Gotta Be Cooking. And so the three of us work together now on all photography, food style, any sort of visual asset for What's Gotta Be Cooking, we work on together. Matt's the photographer, Adam's the food stylist. I do all the recipe development and creative direction and like my brand like it, it was delegating things is really hard for me because I'm so I'm a control freak but working with mm -hmm. them who I, I trust so like I just trust them with everything it's been a game changer and what was that like in the sense of starting to really define your aesthetic your voice uh what recipes you were going to develop as you kind of were discussing about talking to your mentor of what what's Gobby cooking looking like as a brand? What was that? 
Yeah, so it was all about being this approachable, everyday California girl. Like, when, when Lori, my mentor, and I worked together, I word vomited to her for, like, weeks on end about what I thought What's Gabby Cooking was. And she took it all and very nicely, like, put it into a little package and came back to me and was like, Gabby, you're the California girl. And I was like, well, duh, like, it can't be that simple. And she was like, no, no, it is that simple. Like, this is what you do. This is what you eat and you breathe and you live. And so when I, when I realized that I was this everyday California girl and nothing is unattainable, everything is approachable and we're an inclusive community and I want to bring joy to people's lives, that was so key in me creating content that revolved around that idea. So everything I do, I know... I think to myself, is this recipe on brand? Is the, How is it going to photograph? Are people going to relate to it? Are they going to want to cook it in their kitchen? Does it feel like a little piece of California when you're living in the middle of South Dakota? Um, everything ties back to being that California girl. So I can give a clear message across visuals, my voice, the books, everything. So you mentioned you just used a word that I love, um, which was community. And I would like to kind of discuss a little bit about what that was like for you in terms of building a digital community. And then we can go into like how you continue to keep them engaged. Um, I know you do everything from like your weekly IG lives. Uh, I'd love to kind of dive in of what your community is like. What was it building it? Um, and how you continue to keep things fresh. Yeah, I think the first time I started really paying attention to com to my community is back in the Snapchat era, because I think I was one of the first people to get on Snapchat and do what essentially we all do on instant stories now, but I did it on Snapchat. And then at the end of every Friday, when my quote unquote snap episode was over, I would spend 24 hours responding to comments and there would just be thousands of people that were watching and having questions and I would help them and then they would send me photos of their recipes the week the all throughout the weekend into the following week and I was like wow like these people they're people actually watching like they're people doing what I'm telling them and it was kind of eye-opening for me and so I really started to nurture those relationships and a lot of them have become like family like there are people who, you know, I've been messaging with that, not on Snapchat. I mean, no one's on Snapchat anymore. I'm on, everyone's on, and everyone's moved back to Insta stories. But I know pe people tell me when they're pregnant before they tell their friends. Like people, you know, I, I'm part of their lives because, like I said, when you're a private chef, you're in their kitchen. And I feel like this is my way of being in their kitchen without actually being there physically. And so, the community like does that answer the question did i did yeah, i just like I mean, go totally off topic no 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 <laughs> I, but I, I want more like now obviously that is something that is so important at the very beginning what is it like now like hundreds of thousands of more followers that many more dms comments yep. like what is your strategy behind that my strategy is to respond to every single person that messages me because i want to give them just as much time as they're giving to me so they responding to dms on instagram and facebook and twitter and on the blog comments and all that takes a huge chunk of my day and i do it myself like i'm not interested in delegating that to an assistant or anything like that because i feel like i'm the only one who can answer these questions about you know like 
about the recipe, but then about life. Like I've talked about very personal things, you know, our fertility journey, our, my relationship with Thomas. And I don't want someone, an assistant being like, yeah, yeah, everything's great. XOXO. Like I want to give people the right answers and what's working for me. So I respond to every single person. And I think that has been a huge differentiator for me in terms of growing my brand, because I think everyone knows I'm going to respond to them not immediately, but within a couple hours. So if they're, if they have a question about whatever, I'll get back to them before they actually have to make dinner. I love that. So, I mean, it's very important. I think it, it's so crucial, no matter how large you get to always be understanding that it's not this sentient being. You have to be truly putting in as much time into talking to people as you are into the content. Yeah. And it's so funny. I feel like there's so many of my friends from high school and college who are like, oh my God, what's copy cooking? looks like so much fun. I'm going to start a blog. And then they realize how much work actually goes into creating content, editing content, pushing it out, responding to people. And they're like, oh no, this is a terrible idea. I quit. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's true. I think one of the harder things for people, um, I think it ties into the conversation about uh, this being very much so like you as a Cali girl and it's authentically uh, Gabi. Um, and it's so draining to be putting your whole kind of life into this work of not only the content that's an extension of you, but then this dialogue with the community. Um, so if it isn't really 100% you, then it's just like the hardest, hardest job to kind of take on because you're having to kind of put on a front. Um, so I find that the people that are the most successful and are able to be as like plugged in and active with their communities are the ones that are just really authentically themselves. Yeah. I think it's very easy for people to see through otherwise. Yeah. Um, then I kind of want to, you, you talked about Snapchat. What has been kind of your, thought process with social media as things have come and gone um what's what's kind of your approach to a new platform or expanding to different verticals like twitter facebook sure i i think it's really i i was not an early adapter of instagram at all like i was actually quite late to the game um and so i think learning from that it pays to be an early adapter and maybe you don't know exactly what your voice is on that platform yet but like just get in there and experiment with it and see what's happening i also think that doesn't mean you have to be on every platform like for example, I'm on TikTok and I'm a consumer of TikTok, but I haven't quite figured out how I want to create content on that platform yet. And I think you and I talked about this when we were in New York. Yes. Oh my God. That was at the very beginning. Yeah. But like, to me, I, I just think it's worth it to get your username, to get your feet wet and like see what's happening and then see if it works for you. Like, for me, I'm a terrible dancer. Like, I don't think I want to do TikTok dancing <laughs> videos, but like maybe I can think of something else. But that also, just because I'm on it doesn't mean I have to create content for it. I know my audience isn't on TikTok yet. Like, so if I'm going to do TikTok content, I would be creating a new audience, which is great, but it just depends how much time you have to 
invest in in because like it takes a lot to cultivate an audience on a new platform so like for oh, me I I'm, know it. yeah i know you're a pro so like i'm focused so much on my facebook group my instagram audience i even love twitter um and you know meeting in real life like in life in real life events are very important to the what's Gabby cooking brand so TikTok might happen for us. It might not. My husband, on the other hand, is thriving at TikTok, and some of his videos have millions of views. And I'm like, you're literally Wait. singing Frozen in an ice tub. Like, how What's does this happen? What's his handle? What's his handle? I think it's What's Thomas Eating, the same as oh in my his God, Instagram. Okay. I love that. Oh, my God. I'm going to do a deep dive. <laughs> um, actually, that's kind of a perfect segue um, into What's Thomas Eating of – I'd love to discuss this dynamic <laughs> and what it's like. Um, for example, like when did he begin to get involved? What has kind of been that journey? Sure. So Thomas has always been involved in some way, shape or form. Like he learned how to build websites in college. So he was always helping like moonlight as the tech end of what's got to be cooking back 10 years ago when we started. Um, but he didn't come on full time until about a year ago and a year previous to that he was like your instagram is so freaking perfect and you're a disaster a lot of the time in in other life like i think he just so he just started what's thomas eating his instagram platform as a very creative outlet to show the other side of what's gobby cooking and like how it's not always beautiful cheese boards and skillet baked gnocchi and sometimes i'm eating grilled cheese with ketchup on the floor like like in my robe like it's not always pretty and he's we never thought it would go anywhere it we never thought it would turn into anything but thomas has landed (laughs) thomas had a huge sponsor deal last year with one of with a giant financial company and he's thriving like he's loving it he posts like once a week or something and it's always making fun of me or so it's just really comical (laughs) And what is that kind of been in terms of the, not only that kind of working together with someone you love, but the dynamic of him now being in the situation of having to learn the other side of everything you've been working for of that kind of like, I, I mean, I hate, I really hate the word influencer, um, so but I also I. Have, have been struggling to find out like, what's the replacement word? Um, yeah. We, we talked about this in New York too. We have to find yeah, a different word. <laughs> we have to, we have to. Um, but I always think that's really a fun situation. That's something that's happened to me because I do these videos where I cook with my husband and he's someone who's very private, not very like active on social like he he doesn't he doesn't understand like i had to walk him through how to like post a story for the first time and that was like two months ago um (laughs) but because we do these videos cooking together like he's occasionally gotten stopped and recognized in new york um and that's like a stretch because it's not like i'm getting crazy views but the i think it's always so interesting when someone is kind of part of this realm even if adjacent and slowly because of what's gobby cooking as a brand is encompassing your whole life naturally thomas is part of that Um, right so that's only going to continue and expand especially with like the fact that i I think that's such a huge part of how people cook and how people uh 
eat and their lives in the kitchen are very much entwined with their their significant others, their families. Um, so I love that type of content. Thank you. Yeah, he's driving. I mean, and Thomas can do different kinds of content than I can. Like he's taken all these psalm classes online. So he talks a lot more about wine than I'm comfortable talking about. And I mean, he has he he does he gets noticed every time before me when we're at the grocery store, or the farmers markets before quarantine hit like he's just taking it in stride and the but as far as like the tech side goes of him getting into that kind of stuff he's like the nerdiest tech guy in the world so he's like i'll just figure he just figures it all out on his own like he's very um you know self-sustaining about that kind of stuff love that very important um so let's talk a little bit about meal plans which is something that i feel like has been that's such a huge part of your website and what people come to you for. When did that start? Uh, and I'd love to know if that, like the connections between that and your life as a private chef. Cause I do think that the two kind of go hand in hand. Yeah. So the meal plan started probably four years ago. And honestly, it started as a way for me to repurpose old content because I have 2000 plus recipes on what's gotta be cooking and you only see maybe one or two of them a day. So I wanted to make something where I could resurface older recipes and bring them to the light of day again. And then about a year in, it turned into the most like successful piece of content on the website because people are so hungry for what, like they just wanna plan. They just wanna know what to do. So if I can offer that to them and think it through, like how much, like we're not gonna do chicken all five nights. So like, let's do some chicken, some vegetarian, some pasta, some healthy, some decadent, and do that thought work for them and post it. It is a huge relief off their back, whether or not they follow it to a T or they just follow two or three or four nights of it, whatever. Um, I think it's been really helpful for people to see how we meal plan. And it's been great. When I was a private chef, I would meal plan Every week I would send a menu in on Sundays, it would get approved or they would ask for modifications. I'd resend it in and then I would grocery shop every morning before I was a private chef, but we had a general plan. Of course, we always are able to deviate from that now or back then because things come up, people used to come over for dinner, stuff like that happens. Um, but I think when you have a general plan for your for your food for the week it makes you not as stressed out it brings a little bit more like like it just makes you feel more at ease when you're trying to figure out you're like oh i know what's for dinner like i don't have to like go look at websites for two hours and then eat at 9 p.m does that make sense love it yeah it makes perfect sense i think that's something that's so i mean we have had the exact same effect with our audience in terms of our meal plans. And I think that that's something that still to this day, as people try to become more empowered in the kitchen, um, having that sort of structure is so key. Mm -hmm. And with that, we are going to take a quick break. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. A cherry isn't just a cherry. When it comes to tart cherries, the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry variety is the cherry with more. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. U.S. Montmorency tart cherries are also one of America's superfruit, which means they're good for you. 
Tart cherries contain many antioxidants and beneficial phytonutrients, including anthocyanins, the pigments that give tart cherries their bright red color. And don't forget about flavor. U.S. Montmorency's unique sour-sweet profile make them an excellent addition to yogurt, oatmeal, salads, trail mix, and of course, a classic cherry pie. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry at choosecherries.com. So I I now kind of want to go into your cookbooks. Um, I just got your new beautiful cookbook, which we'll dive into. But I first want to talk about what it was like getting that first book deal. What was kind of your thought process, your approach, the proposal, um, and how was it like going through that process? Yeah. So the first book came out, I think, in 2013, 2012, something about that. It was called Absolutely Avocados. And... I remember being in New York back in like 2010. I was a private chef. I was there with Matt and Adam. They were shooting something for Food Network. And we went out to dinner with a group of people in the food industry, mostly bloggers at the time. This was when like, you know, this was when like blog her was still around and stuff like that. And we were sitting at a table and I looked, I was sitting next to an editor and he was like, you know, I'm looking for the new pioneer woman. What would you write about it if you wrote a cookbook? And I very much jokingly said, avocados. Like I was known on Twitter as a girl obsessed with avocados at the time. And I was totally kidding. I gave no thought to it whatsoever. But then he was like, oh, that's a great idea. And then a couple weeks later, he emailed me and he was like, I want to buy it. Like you should get yourself an agent. And so I scrambled to get myself an agent. I signed the deal. It was looking back at it. Um, there were a lot of things in that in that deal that I didn't know better than to ask for, and so it, it was a huge learning experience for me. Um, and I had like five followers on Twitter at the time. Like I I was very tiny, and so the book was just like a cute little side project. I thought it was a huge deal, of course, and then it ended up selling okay. Like it wasn't, it wasn't going to be a bestseller or anything like that. But I think I didn't, I just didn't manage. I didn't know what I was doing to be totally honest at the time. Um, and so whatever it came out, it was fine. And I remember, well, I should back up when I signed that deal. I had, I had emailed a bunch of different agents to see if anyone wanted to represent me. And there was one woman who I really wanted, who told me, no, she said, you're, I'm not, you're not ready for me you haven't developed your voice yet or your brand. And I was like, okay, whatever. Like I like avocados. I'm pretty sure I'm fine. And anyways, she passed on me and that was fine. And then four or five years, four years later, I got an email from her and she was like, Hey, I've been watching you. And I think you're ready. Like, I think if you want to work together, I'm ready to work with you. And so I left my, my first literary agent, I signed with Janice and she changed my world because she when I, she was like, all right, we need to write a new proposal for your next book. And she tore it to pieces. Like my first proposal was nothing. Like I bar- I didn't even write one really. I just was like, hey, like let's do it. And it got bought. But with my second book and my third book, I had to really spend time writing a proposal and fleshing it out. And I hired someone to help me edit it and we shot photos for it. And I spent so much time and money perfecting it that it was already such a different experience when we took that to market. And then 
also at that time, I knew I didn't want a literary, I mean, I didn't want an editor who really wanted to be my friend. I wanted an editor who was going to push me. I ended up finding someone who could do both, but that wasn't my experience with my first book. I kind of want to go in a little deeper on that experience of the first book, just because I think it's so important um, for so many people who kind of work so hard just to get that first deal. And then oftentimes it isn't as magical as it seems um, in the sense of like things with your first contract. We don't need to get into specifics, but were there any kind of like bigger. We, we can get into specifics. I'm an open sure. book. Here's, sure. here's what, here's what I didn't ask for. I didn't know. I didn't get any creative control about what the book looked like, which was very devastating to me as someone who's a visual person. Yes, I got to work with Matt and Adam on it. So I knew the photos were beautiful, but I didn't have any say on the cover, the layout, how big the book was going to be, the fonts. I got none of that, which was really hard. So I would say if you're listening to this and you want, you, you want that book and you have a defined visual voice, you have to put that in the contract that maybe you don't get final say, but you need, you need like, it's a partner deal. Like, because here's the deal. You're the one promoting it. Like you're the one going out there and taking a couple of weeks off of work to travel around the country and to put it on your platforms and all that stuff. So it's something you have to stand behind, which is I like fully stand behind my second and my third book. And my first book's incredible. The recipes are amazing, but like it's, it doesn't look how I want it to look. Um, And I would also say you have to interview all the agents and all the editors and find out who you want to work with because someone who you think is cool and want you want to be friends with them doesn't always, it's not always the best fit for you. So like for me, I really need someone to be like, Gabby, you're writing. This is garbage. Like this is like, you need to like actually put some thought into this. And it's made me a much better businesswoman because I had that for the first for the second two books. Um, so is that, is that specific? That's absolutely perfect. And I think so important. Um, I'll never forget. It actually didn't make it onto the podcast because it happened shortly after when we were walking back to the studio, but we had Deb Perlman um, on of Spin Kitchen and we kind of discussed that, that same thing. And she told me as we were leaving the studio a story that, um, she was kind of asking Ina Garten for advice when she was doing her first book. Um, And Ina had explained to her that she had this one situation in which she had a book deal and said very clearly that she wanted um, every recipe photographed and they didn't want to do it. So she pulled the book and went to another agency. And the reason being is like, if your book doesn't do well, or it is like a huge hit, it needs to be your vision either way because the publisher's not going to work with you again if it's a terrible, if it does terribly. Um, but at the same time, if it's not your vision and does terribly, you'll always wonder like, what would have happened if I actually had fought for what I want? 
Right. And just have the wherewithal to know to ask for stuff like that. Like I thought it was a given. I had no idea. And I do think having a recipe for every image is so important. Like there's nothing that makes me sadder when I get a cookbook and there's like five photos in it. I'm like, okay, uh, this can go on my bookshelf. It's a pretty spine, but I'm not going to cook from it. And that happened with me when I, because I shot my book a few weeks ago. And I remember in the conversations where my my editor my former editor i've switched editors um since but the, he very much was like well we will probably get of the 100 recipes 70 to 80 photos and i said that was unacceptable and i Good made sure you. that our photo shoot like i spent 14 hour days making sure that every dish was ready so that even if we couldn't extend the shoot like every photo was going to be taken that's um, incredible and, and, the, the the key part is that I think it's the, the the tie between both these stories is the concept of artistic vision and that it's so it's so different from something like an like a social media platform or blog where you really can have total control and all of a sudden you're in this scenario in which there are other voices telling you what to do. Right. And it's also in the in on the blog, on social media, you can go back and edit things. But when you write a book, it's there. Like if you, I've actually found a typo and I'm like, well, shit, now I I have to wait for the like fourth printing to fix it because they've already printed so many. But you know, you have to be so careful about all that kind of stuff and really think it through. And also I think it's smart to not like, not just jump into the first deal that comes to you because there are many publishing companies who will offer you $5 for a cookbook and let this be said, cookbooks are not money makers. Like I have done three now and my advances have gotten bigger and bigger, but the, we actually spend more and more money on the book because I want to create an incredible product. But you have to like, you shouldn't go into writing a book to make money. You should go into it. It's a marketing, it's a piece of marketing material. Like you want this to last forever. It's going to be in people's homes. You want it to be of service to people. Um, so just like have those kinds of things in your mind when you're going, you're not going to become a millionaire by writing cookbooks. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Um, so I am currently going through your new book, eat what you want. Um, it's so gorgeous. I, I mean, I think that was going to be a given no matter what. Um, Thank you. but I, I love that it very much. So feels like a Cali girls just cookbook and that's it down to your like the i see like little gem salad with avocado and just the the visuals the ideas french onion grilled cheese tell me a little bit about how this book compares to your last and what kind of things you took away from the last experience that you put into this one So my second cookbook was such a pleasurable experience. I ended up signing with an editor who I has turned into a dear friend of mine, but she also pushes me very hard and she taught me so many things. She taught me proper way, like the proper way to format all these recipes and all these different things. And I just think the difference between the second book and the third book really comes down to entertaining because in the second book I had no entertaining menus, no cocktails, nothing like that. It was just like bomb recipes that I wanted to reflect my California girl life. This cookbook has a lot more. I mean, not that we can entertain right now anyways, but when we get out of quarantine, we're all going to have all the house parties. So 
it, it just has more of like that community feel to it. And there are a lot more cocktails in it. And then recipe wise, it's an extension of the second book. Like I have a very much global, California is like a global melting pot that I take inspiration from and put my California spin on it. So I think this book has a little bit more of a global influence. And I took the recipes from the second book, like the LARP and all that kind of stuff. And I expanded that into an entire chapter called when in doubt vacation because I saw how much my audience was like hungry for those global flavors but in an approachable way without ingredients that were hard to track down so I just took what I learned from the second book and put it into the third along with cocktails along with cocktails amazing (laughs) well what would the next book be in terms of We just had that conversation. I was talking to my publishers last week and they're like, so what are you going to do for your fourth book? And I'm like, uh, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, let me sleep on it for six months and then let's talk about it. Yeah. So so let's actually touch on that, that briefly about what was the timeline for this book in terms of the recipe development, the shoot. So most books, I would say, take two years start to finish. This book took us 18 months, so a year and a half, because originally we wanted it to come out fall 2020, fall 2020, but then we're like, oh shit, it's election year. There's going to be like debates and all this stuff happening. I don't want to be on the road while everyone's like, if I'll get bumped from every TV show, if Correct. someone does something dumb during during election season. So we pushed it up six months. I didn't actually, I still got the full year to write it, but my editing period was shortened and they had to rush print it. Um, which is all, I mean, all of it is, doesn't even matter anymore because my book tour got canceled because of COVID. So I, (laughs) I got bumped from all the shows anyways. Um, but normally I would say you need 20 to 24 months to really put the work in, do the recipe development, edit, have a copy editor, like really get in there. It's a long process. So you have to think so long term in terms of what recipes are going to be relevant in two years when you start. And how do you, how, what's your approach to kind of planning that far out, especially compared to a blog and like anyone who works in digital food, the turnaround is so quick. Um, because you can just really jump on those, those, like anything that you see, um, that's of the moment, what is kind of your thought process when you're thinking that far out? So I don't do much trendy food anyways. Like I, I, I'm just, that's never been my thing. Like I hated cupcakes 10 years ago when cupcakes were popular. <laughs> it just, I'm not into, I just, I'm, and I, I don't do this in any part of my life, like fashion trends, hair trends. Like it's just not who I am as a person. So I feel fortunate in the fact that I just try and make timeless inspired recipes that are going to work for all the times, but that doesn't like. There, like there's an omelet souffle in here that was inspired by those like cloud eggs or some what, whatever those were that everybody posted. And I was like, shit, I should have posted those. But I was like, it's too late now. Everybody else did it. Um, but I just want recipes that are really going to work in people's kitchens, no matter how many kids you have, if you're single, if you're in a relationship, have a partner, whatever. Um, so I, ha- I keep that in my mind when developing recipes for something that's two years in the making. Love it. Love it. Well, with that, that brings us into our lightning round, which is my favorite part of the podcast, where I'm just going to throw a few questions your way. (laughs) I'm ready. Um, 
So first would be who's killing it on the gram? Who do you love to follow? It could be food people. It could be non-food people. Throw a few Heather names. McMahon. Heather McMahon's my absolute favorite follow on Instagram. Do you follow her? I do not. Tell me a little bit more. She's a comedian. She's based in New York, but she's from Atlanta. She's quarantining in Atlanta, actually. And she just produces the most hot fire content. She's so <laughs> freaking funny. I die for her. Um, she's one of my favorite. Brad, have you been watching Brad Bucks with Brad and Gary Janetti? Yes. Oh, my God. I mean, well, like Gary Janetti is just. Love them. Amazing. Yeah, Gary's incredible. But their Brad Bucks gig is everything to me. Um who else do I love following? Those are my top two favorites. Oh, and then Jamie Beck, who's a really dear friend of mine. She has nothing to do with the food world. She's an artist. She's in Provence, but she started this thing called Isolation Creation, and she's shooting something every day that she just forages in her like backyard, basically, and it's turned into this incredible project. People from all over the world are buying her prints, and I just think it's so nice to see someone taking the quarantine and like turning it into something beautiful. Amazing. That's great. Um, what have been, I've never, like, I hate when I'm like, what's your favorite recipe you developed, but what are some kind of like highlights throughout the years that you look back and you're like, I am, I always make this recipe because it is just amazing. Yeah. My dad's kitchen sink cookies, which are in the new cookbook are some of my favorite because my dad is the biggest sweet tooth of them all only to be rivaled by my mother. Um, slutty brownies near and dear to my heart. That was one of my first recipes to go viral. Uh, basil vinaigrette, which is something I did a couple years ago that you will see on so many recipes I do because it's just the condiment of my choice besides ketchup. Um, and the, the larb. I have a chicken larb in my second book, a salmon larb in my third book. I have a couple different, a beef larb on my website. I just love the flavor profiles from like a Thai larb dish. Love it. So good. I mean, now I'm like very, very excited about these vinaigrettes. I also love the way that you shot the condiment section. Of Thank your book. you. All Thank like you. Full, the little kind of Images that yes that floods the whole frame which is i think such a nice way to do it thank you um what's exciting you in the food space right now it could be an ingredient it could be kind of like a place that you wanted to travel to before quarantine that you will go to when this is all over it can be a technique a recipe anything yeah, I have never been to Asia, so I'm just like enamored with all sorts of Asian cooking and techniques and flavor profiles, and I was planning on going this fall. I don't know if that'll still happen, but I just want to go, and I want to eat all the things and learn all the different, you know, flavor combinations and cooking techniques, and so I feel like, and you see some of that in my la- in my in my most recent book, I, I'm definitely having a moment. Um so that's what's on my mind. And like also tahini, but like tahini was really popular three years ago, but I still love it. <laughs> yes, yes, it still slaps. I love it. Um, all right. And this is my favorite question. Every episode we play a game of fuck, marry, kill, um, oh. but, with, <laughs> but not with people, of course. Um, so I picked some like beautiful, like Cali dishes um, for you. So your options are... Um, Avocado toast, grain bowls, and fish tacos. Okay, wait. Grain bowl, fish tacos. I'm writing these down because this is like a really intense question for me. Yes. Okay. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill the grain bowl. Okay. 
Uh, I'm going to marry the avocado toast. No, I'm going to marry the fish taco. No. Oh, mm, that's so hard. <laughs> Fuck the fish taco. Marry the avocado toast. Kill the grain bowl. <laughs> Amazing. Here we go. We love a challenge. I mean, avocado toast is just never going to cheat on you, right? Never, like, it's never. so it's basic. Always there. <laughs> always there in the morning, too. Yes. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's it. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Gabby. This was such an incredible conversation. Thank you to everyone for listening. To learn more about the food and drink discovery platform that is The Feed Feed, head to thefeedfeed.com. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at The Feed Feed and myself at Jay Cohen and Gabby at What's Gabby Cooking. Um, If you have a tip on who the next social media culinary star will be, send us a DM. We will see you next time. The Feed Feed is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.